Today we are going to talk about longing for the far off country in C.S. Lewis. Now, with apologies to my parents, I did not grow up in a musical environment. We were not a musical family. I thought beetles were always insects until I was in college. So at 20 years old, when someone gave me a sampling of classical music, I was not prepared for what could happen. Many of you no doubt know what can happen. The very first time I played this CD, the first selection was Pachelbel's Canon in D. And I was sitting on the window seat of my 14th century dormitory, looking out over a cobblestone street at the doors of the 12th century Merton Chapel, and the music began to swell. Now for you, cultured as you are, that may have moved you none at all. But for me, a boy from Tennessee, whose world was kudzu and frogs and crickets and catfish, humidity and mud, the violins struck my heart. I was overwhelmed. It felt like the music was coming from inside me and that it had burst out there from some source in the distant past. As I was beginning to sob without understanding what was happening to me, then the massive doors of Merton Chapel swung open and a bride with her groom came out, just washed with joy. They were, they were glowing and the music in my ears and the music in my heart was their music too and their friends and their family began to pour out into the street and for a moment, I thought I might die if there was more joy. That I, this case could not handle what was happening. I didn't have words for what happened at that moment until I read C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy a couple months after that particular experience. I had had experiences like that before, but they'd never been connected to music um, but as a child, I knew that at odd moments, I might become suddenly captivated, held for a minute in, in delight by something I had not sought and couldn't have predicted, couldn't have imagined, but fully conscious for an instant that the world was made good and that I was made for that goodness too and that it was right. Lewis described it this way, it is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. He's describing a moment like this in his childhood. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But of desire for what? And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. 
despite his extraordinary intellect, rigorous training in the arts of reason, it was this experience that nagged at him of something more, of a message from a far-off country, a momentary illusion of belonging to that world beyond. Perhaps his best description of this is in the wartime sermon, The Weight of Glory. This is a long selection. Now, if we are made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will be already in us, but not yet attached to the true object. If a trans-temporal, trans-finite good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes must be in some degree fallacious, must bear at best only a symbolical relation to what will truly satisfy. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. But that's a cheat. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Those of you who are especially interested in Lewis' biography know that this experience of what he would come to call joy was a subtle goad from the heavenlies to keep seeking, to keep asking, to keep pondering his deepest desire, longing for this unknown thing that might answer the questions of meaning and significance. Of this search he wrote 15 years after his conversion, it appeared to me that if a man diligently followed this desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared, and then resolutely abandoning them, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given in our present mode of subjective and spatially limited experience. This desire was, in the soul, the chair in which only one could sit, 
And if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit in this chair must exist. This was his own journey to faith in Christ. Not abandoning rational exploration and intellectual pursuits in the realm of objectivity. Not abandoning the emotional gifts and the urges of subjectivity, but receiving and engaging both sets of gifts as the road of heaven itself. It's what Malcolm Geith calls Lewis's great synthesis, his ability to, to maintain objectivity and uh, rational exploration and also emotional engagement. Neither reason nor imagination are complete on their own. The intensely subjective gift of desire and longing is to awaken the quest to know God more truly, more intimately, more deeply, to move further up, further in to that objective beyondness. Countless readers and critics, you included, have noted this recurrent appearance of the theme of longing throughout Lewis's works. Whether in the Christian apologetics, or his autobiographical writings, or his fiction, even in his scholarship, it appears. Whether it's in direct discussion of the theology of heaven and hell, or that imaginary journey to heaven in the great divorce, Direct discussions of the, the everlasting realms, they're infused with this theme of desire. More indirectly, though, the creation of the fictional world of Narnia, or the unfallen Paralandra in the Space Trilogy, the very genre of fantasy draws on the power of yearning for another world. And moreover, virtually every critic who touches on this subject links Lewis's consistent motif of longing with his classical learning and his Platonism. In, in Platonism, he found a vocabulary and a framework for understanding the experience of desire for God. So where the disagreement arises, though, everyone notices this, where the disagreement arises is in the explanation for why he incorporates so much longing in his work. There are different explanations to this. Some critics, typically on called the secular end, argue that Lewis was simply a Platonist that was wearing a Christian costume, and he substituted God for Plato's good. His Christianity, as they understand it, was simply a quest for an orderly society which he knew about in Christendom through his academic study, his longing for the return of a medieval world to a modernity that had lost those notes. Others see in this Lewisian longing just a powerful ingredient for successful writing. He wanted to be a good writer. And so... Personally conscious of literature's power to awaken delight, uh, they argue, Lewis followed the great Renaissance writer Philip Sidney, whose prescription for imaginative fiction was to awaken in readers a, a delight that would move them towards truth. So this is Sidney's frame. Fiction imitates in order both to delight and teach and delight in order to move men to take that goodness in hand 
which without delight, they would fly as from a stranger and teach to make them know what goodness whereunto they are moved. So essentially in this argument, Lewis knew from his masters, Chaucer, Sidney, Spencer, Shakespeare, Milton, what makes for great literature. It's the stuff of heaven. And so a Christian writer ought to write great literature. That's what one ought to aspire to do if you are a writer. Not directly, not explicitly talking of God, but since longing for the undiscovered country is true, it's a true, it's a a good and a right part of human experience, it will be a valuable tool for writing good and true things. So essentially, his goal was to be a good writer, and this was a useful tool to that end. To the second argument and these critics, I have to concede, yes, yes. As a writer in the classical tradition, Lewis aimed to imitate those who had gone before him, to see by the light they had seen by, to follow their excellence, and he found that the stirring of desire for the far-off country produces a delightful aesthetic experience. It's a wonderful effect that's accessible to everyone. And so Christians who write must always be committed to excellence and if possible, to produce the highest possible effects. Yes, I think this is right, especially when we regard Lewis as he consciously presented himself, Uh, especially in his inaugural lecture as chair of Renaissance Medieval Studies at Cambridge He presented himself as a man out of step with his own time, as a dinosaur, called himself a living dinosaur, a pre-modern spokesman of old Western culture, a figure from the past speaking with a living voice. Those are all his own descriptions. But this is an incomplete picture of Lewis as a Christian and of what has actually resulted from his literary output. It's inadequate to explain what's happening here today, why why we are interested in him, why his works have affected us. In my remaining time, I want to argue that, yes, Lewis used all the tools of Platonism to awaken a desire for God to awaken a desire for the heavenly realms and for participation in the far-off country even now. But he came to reckon with another element, and it was a hard one, the truth of active grace, of a living God who calls with effectual voice, effectual calling, who's active in those moments of longing, and draws us that we might actually follow him, not merely experience his good gifts. Because we're considering a a wide corpus across 30 years of his work, we're going to approach chronologically and hit just a couple moments. The first bit of Christian writing that Lewis attempted following his conversion in 1929 was an imitation of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the journey narrative, based on his own journey to faith in Christ. Lewis purposely gives his protagonist, John, 
an experience like his own that awakened desire for his true home. It occurs very early in the book. John is out for a walk. He's in a, a country path and comes to a garden wall with a window in the wall. I quote, Through it he saw a green wood full of primroses. And he remembered suddenly how he had gone into another wood to pull primroses as a child very long ago. So long that even in the moment of remembering, the memory seemed still out of reach. While he strained to grasp it, there came to him from beyond the wood a sweetness and a pang so piercing that instantly he forgot his father's house and his mother and the fear of the landlord and the burden of the rules. All the furniture of his mind was taken away. A moment later, he found that he was sobbing and the sun had gone in and what it was that had happened to him, he could not quite remember. Nor whether it had happened in this wood or in the other wood when he was a child. Presently, he went home with a sad excitement upon him, repeating to himself a thousand times, I know now what I want. For, for the character John, this moment awakens him to a desire for goodness, longing. Until then, he had been burdened and crushed by a set of rules in that world. But he had felt in that abstracted moment what it might mean to be fully alive. Soon, as the story progresses, the memory of that moment of pure longing gives way to a, a desire to experience again that moment. And so John begins a quest to satisfy that secondary desire to experience again that moment. And he finds himself, as the younger Lewis did, alternately caught in the mires of sensuality, trying to satisfy through the inputs of the flesh, or the lofty barrenness of rationalism, always seeking to slake that thirst. Reflecting on John's journey and his own book, Lewis later wrote, This desire, even when there is no hope of possible satisfaction, continues to be prized and even to be preferred to anything else in the world. Through his wandering and many disasters, John finds himself finally in the house of wisdom and he's joined by guides representing intellect and emotion rightly ordered. And that, that path from awakening to wisdom could easily be called the path of Platonism. But yes, that, that would be an accurate description of what John experiences. But there's more. Because again, as Lewis did, he didn't stay there in his journey. He continued on and he finds his way home. And at the end, he sings. John sings this. Passing today by a cottage, I shed tears. When I remembered how once I had dwelled there with my mortal friends who are dead, years little had healed the wound that was laid bare. Out, little spear that stabs, 
I, fool, believed I had outgrown the local, unique sting. I had transmuted away. I was deceived. Into love universal the thing loved. But thou, Lord, surely knewest thine own plan. When the angelic indifferences with no bar universally loved, but thou gavest man the tether and pang of the particular. In other words, he had thought by using higher wisdom, the Platonic way, he could love purely the pure ideas of things. He could love universal mankind with pure love. He could love goodness. He could long for the good with steady, clarified understanding like the angels. But to be a human, to be a human fully alive means loving particular things. People, places, dogs, this dog, that street, this cottage, that grumpy neighbor, that very stupid relative. Reflecting the image of God means giving to and serving real people, not idealized ones, not mankind. The recently converted Lewis, writing in 1932, knew that Platonism did not give you grace for the ugly, the fallen, the broken. To long with piercing longing for the goodness of the ugly. That the grumpy relative might be more fully himself or herself. For the renovation of hearts that have turned to hating. Or even to have an appreciative love for earthly grass, trees, farmyard, cottage. And to yearn that these muddy things might participate in everlasting life. That desire must come from someone with a father's love for mankind. And that recognition differentiates Lewis from Platonism. That the pierce of longing one experiences comes from the love of God for what he has loved. For God so loved the world, he gave Now, as many of you know, the pilgrim's regress did not meet with success. And particularly if you are under the age of 15, I don't recommend you try to read it. Lewis's attempt to stimulate longing for God by chronicling his own journey of desire didn't produce the desired results. It did not stir desire. Reflecting on this in a rarely read afterward to a reprint of that edition 10 years on, his own criticism was of needless obscurity and an uncharitable temper that ran through the work. He had come to realize that his own journey was, quote, a road very rarely trodden. In the early 30s, I did not know this. If I had had any notion of my own isolation, I should either have kept silent about my journey or else endeavored to describe it with more consideration for the readers. I've already quoted from this afterward in his direct descriptions of longing. It seems to me that this failure of the pilgrim's regress, the, the failure of this work 
to induce longing in the readers partially led Lewis on a different trajectory. It gave him more energy and attention to a philosophical approach to Christian writing and Christian teaching. And so for 15 years, Lewis made no attempt, no attempt to craft a fictional moment of awakened desire like he had done in that work. He made no attempt to craft a fictional presentation of a piercing with joy. He left it. Instead, he described it directly. This is the period that maybe more of you are familiar with. The period of the problem of pain with its final chapter on heaven of which he says this, all the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of heaven, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should become manifest, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. The next year after the problem of pain, he delivered that famous description, already quoted at length, from the weight of glory, this, that inconsolable secret in all of us that must rank among the greatest articulations of longing, uh, certainly in modern literature. This is the period of mere Christianity, the radio talks and the texts that followed. And then he came to the delightfully interesting The Great Divorce, which presents itself as fiction but is a work of theology. And uh, you would think, wouldn't you, that a fictional journey into the heavenlies would provide opportunity to test again the aesthetic of longing, provide moments where, where he might give his characters some experience of it. He does not, surprisingly, None of the characters in The Great Divorce are stirred with desire. Nor does he create poetic moments that might gift his readers with the pang of desire. Despite them walking around a fictional heaven, he does not offer those moments. Instead, it remains a work of apologetics in dialogue form, if you're familiar with it. Angels, new saints, dialogue with ghosts, their old friends and relatives. George MacDonald, dialogues with the protagonist. It's all very reasonable. It's all in the, the realm of the intellectual. All of these works had a profound impact. They established Lewis's reputation as the foremost Christian apologist of the 20th century. And I also can't help but conclude from this period that C.S. Lewis had lost his confidence as a writer able to awaken longing. He fell back on his gifts as an intellectual. Looking directly at it, he could do. He was confident. Yes, I can describe this. I can analyze it. Describe it as nobody else can. But awaken it? Maybe not. Something about this approach troubled him in that, that middle period. 
Closing a lecture in Wales in 1943, he commented, I have found that nothing is more dangerous to one's faith than the work of an apologist. No doctrine of the faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal as the one that I have just successfully defended in a public debate. His point was that truths proven on merely intellectual grounds have less substance, have less weight, less transformative power than truth which moves the heart because we are souls embodied. In other words, his success at rational defense with its frequent failure to transform hearts reminded him of his own journey, reminded him that an awakened desire for God, an awakened longing had been necessary, had been the necessary step, a necessary precedent for faith for a faith that could then seek understanding. Well, somehow, a desire, a, the thought to give a gift to some children and the memory of an image of a fawn walking through the woods carrying packages changed the direction of his writing ministry. Once he had written The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis never again wrote a work of apologetics. He discovered that in children's fiction, he was on the fertile ground of the imagination. It was there that desire for the good, desire for the heavenly, most naturally was kindled. It was in remembering childhood experience a childhood posture and reawakening the fairy tale imagination that adults might reconnect to their own first inklings, first kindlings of longing. Readers of Narnia, and I think that's most of you, will be familiar with countless moments in which characters are moved or they're flooded with joy. Even before they know who he is, Three of the Pevensey children are thrilled at the mention of Aslan's name. Something comes to them from beyond. In Prince Caspian, as the children wait on the platform of a train station at the beginning and they're sharing memories of Narnia, they're swept back into the other world. In a later adventure, as Edmund and Lucy gaze at a picture of a Narnian ship, again, art becomes the doorway. They are literally transported into the voyage of the Don Treader, along with their cousin Eustace Scrub. The Don Treader, as a story, it's peppered with moments of desire as the ship sails towards the heavenly east of Aslan's country. Every new island, towards the world's end, it, it tingles with reflections of heaven, stronger and stronger as they get closer. <coughs> And finally, there at the world's end, Lewis recreates the scene from John 21. The three children step ashore and they find a lamb next to, quote, a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. 
Come have breakfast, the lamb says. Yet again, the silver chair, Eustace and Jill Pole pass through a door and a garden wall. He comes back, right? Comes back to that. Maybe we'll try that garden wall one more time. Only later did they discover that it was Aslan. They thought they had been calling him, but he was calling them. There are many other such moments, but these moments of the character's awakening are actually subservient to the broader genius that he had discovered, the broader truth he had discovered. I want to mention two last moments in particular that reveal what Lewis had come to. At the end of the last battle, when the plot of his chronicles leads with a sort of inevitability to the end of Narnia and the children's arrival in heaven, Lewis offers a metaphor. This arrival in the real heaven, as they're trying to, to understand it, would be like when we catch a glimpse in a mirror of a view of the sea or a valley through a window behind us. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The piercing, the aching joy of that glimpse is what we shall find satisfied in heaven. Another moment from the voyage of the Don Treader also uses the idea of story. Memorably, Lucy is upstairs in a magician's house and she reads through a book of spells to help these invisible creatures, duffel puds, in order to become visible again. The book she's looking at, a book of spells, might also be called the Book of Desires. After indulging a wicked desire to know what your friends think of you and finding the results sour, Lucy comes to a spell for the refreshment of the spirit. And it turns out to be a story. It went on for three pages, and before she had read to the bottom of the page, she had forgotten that she was reading at all. She was living in the story as if it were real. When she ended, she wished she could go on reading it forever. But part of the magic was that you couldn't turn back the pages of the book. Clearly, Lewis had found that he could produce the kind of story, like the stories he describes here, that could move his readers into longing, could move them into desire for the far-off country. But the secret to this success came by way of the earlier failures of that same project, what he wanted to do. It was not, he found, by direct description, nor even by poetic moments, that desire for God was awakened. These moments, desire for God, could not be predicted it could not be manipulated. Instead, what he could do is offer readers of every age, by, I mean, from youth to adult, 
an engagement with ordinary childhood imagination. To take them back into ordinary childhood imagination. Combined with what he brought, faith that God is alive and he's active. Because he's drawing people to him. That he uses means like childhood imagination. And so by concentrating the reader's mind on a world of fantasy, the story draws down the normal intellectual barriers to what is possible. Reopening hearts to the spiritual. Drawing down cynicism. Sometime in adolescence, we're jaded. I hurt for you young people that are you're at that crossover. We get jaded. We grow conscious of ourselves. We grow conscious of the gaze of other people. And our imaginations chill. And they grow dormant. But stories of other worlds can bring back life to that imagination. Can reconnect us with our old thoughts even if we can't manage to, to fire our own imaginations back, they can at least remind us of the imagination we once had. And so these stories are as much for adults as they are for children. As a literary critic, this is what Lewis saw in Renaissance writers like Edmund Spencer, John Milton, Sidney, Shakespeare. It was in fairyland that Platonism and Christianity overlap. That's where they're on common ground. In a little introduction to a scholarly work, almost never read now, Lewis wrote, <clears throat> Both Platonism and Christianity are united with one another and cut off from most modern thought by their conviction that nature the totality of phenomena in space and time is not the only thing that exists, is indeed the least important thing. Christians and Platonists both believe in the other world. And so like the Renaissance masters he followed and he imitated, Lewis had found a way through Narnian fantasy to reintroduce the least alarming way of the ideas of another world. To introduce to people again uh, an invitation to return to that other way of thinking. But then comes the difference. He goes on. The essential attitude of Platonism is aspiration or longing. The human soul imprisoned in the shadowy, unreal world of nature stretches out its hands and struggles towards the beauty and reality of which lies as Plato says, on the other side of existence. In Christianity, however, the human soul is not the seeker, but the sought. It is God who seeks, who descends from the other world to find and heal man, coming to a place that he loves as well. It is the good shepherd who brings the divine glory or splendor which the Christian soul will not only see but share in heaven, the Christian is given the glory of that real and perfect world which the Platonist is seeking. 
The doctrine of common grace allowed Lewis to craft worlds and stories that anyone can enjoy. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Platonist. Anyone can enjoy this awakening longing for good. Common grace means it's built in. The truth will echo in any attentive soul. That is the qualifier, the attentive soul. But Lewis was a good Augustinian, and he also brought a doctrine of particular grace, that the good shepherd is seeking lost sheep. And when he calls, his call is effective. His call awakening our desire while looking out a car window or walking down a village street or stopping to smell a flower or reading a children's story. It will keep echoing until we obey the call. The shepherd calls not that we might forever seek the delight of, of when we first heard that call, forever trying to return there, nor seek the delights of all the good things that point to Him. But He calls that we might come to Him. He calls that we might heed the call. And heeding the call, continue to follow as He continues to call. Realizing that the desire and the longing which draws us onward will not be fully satisfied until we cross the river. We will always have this longing. There's a profound difference with modern, the advertising industry that promises satisfaction. Just indulge this desire, awaken this desire, and you will be fully satisfied. Our promise is you will keep longing. And the more you follow, the longing will become sharper and clearer until it's all yours. So from his earliest work to his last, Lewis was consistent in trying to induce longing for God. That's why he wrote. But it wasn't until he found Narnia that he was able to invite the childlike posture without which none of us will see the kingdom of heaven. Content then to invite the posture. He could trust the Holy Spirit himself to stir the yearning for the far off country and for breakfast with the Lord. So let's conclude with his words on this subject in Surprised by Joy. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. <laughs>